I figured it out. Yes. Let's start all over again and do the stage cut. No, I'm... Um, you're exactly right. They would look for ways that they could get the defendant off. And if we just went through the name the sage, Gamliel was famous for trying to relax the halakha for folks, right? Same kind of deal. He was a Pharisee. In fact, the Prushim considered a Sanhedrin that issues a death penalty once in seven years as bloodthirsty. Once in seven years, they put some guy to death. Bloodthirsty. That's right out of the Mishnah. So you've got a big difference between these two sects of Judaism. Okay? So let's talk about Gamliel. He speaks with authority here. This, you know the passage we're talking about, right? He stands up and says, put these guys out for a second. Let's talk about this. Right? Acts chapter 5. Back end, 30, 35, 40, somewhere in there. So he speaks with authority, which is great, because prior to this point, the, the Pharisees don't seem to have had any say in what's going on in the Sanhedrin. So finally, he speaks up, and he speaks with wisdom. So we should note that the resurrection of the Master is actually promoting Phariseean theology. What did they teach as opposed to the Sadducees? Sadducees thought what? There is no resurrection. There is no resurrection. What do the Pharisees teach? There is resurrection and there is a world to come. So the fact that Yeshua rose from the dead is actually playing right into their theology. In fact, when Yeshua rose from the dead, it was almost a complete flip. The Pharisees, any part of what you read about them being against Yeshua and the whole Yeshua sect kind of flipped on its head when he rose from the dead because they were willing to look at it as part of their theology, whether or not they agree with him being the Messiah or not. Well, Gamaliel is uh, making this press for the uh, apostles. So let's open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 5. And I'd like you uh, to read me what Gamaliel says. I didn't uh, put it in the... Thing. You got it there? And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thedeus rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up, rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him, and also perished. Uh, he also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or the work is of men, you have come to nothing. But if it is of God, you do not overthrow it lest you even be found to fight against God. Good. So, we picked up there in Acts chapter 5 and verse 33, 34, and uh, read Gamaliel's deal. Wise advice. It is wise advice. What does he want them to do? Simple. What's he want to do? Sit back and it'll fizzle out. Sit back. It'll fizzle out if it's not of God. If it is of God? You're fighting against God? Why would you do that? So just sit back and watch it. Good. I think that's wise and good advice. Now, what's his argument? 
he argues that he uses two prior examples. Yes. Theodos and Judas. Yep. It says, look, these guys rose up and had a following and they fizzled out. So he's, he's basically saying the same thing will happen here if it's not of God. Exactly. And worse, if it is of God and you're fighting against it, well, you're going to find yourself fighting against God, not men. Okay? Everybody with me? We understand what's going on? Okay. Thutis. Thutis. This is from uh, Josephus in the Antiquities, chapter 20. While Thutis was procurator of Judea, a certain magician whose name was Thutis persuaded a large number of people to take their belongings with them and follow him to the Jordan River. Sounds almost like John the Baptist, doesn't it? He told them he was a prophet and that he would split the river by his own command, allowing them an easy escape across it. Many were deceived by his words. However, Faddis did not permit them to test his wild claims. He sent a troop of Roman cavalry out against them. They took them by surprise, slew many of them, and took many of them, many of them alive. This is my favorite part. They also took Thutis alive. And while they got him alive, what did they do? They cut his head off and carried it to Jerusalem. Mr. Prophet. Mr. Prophet. Yeah. That's Thutis. That's what Gamaliel is talking about. This, they already knew. This is, this is in their history. And he talks about Judas of Gamla. This is the Gamla Rebellion. It's about six before the uh, six of the common era. It was, it was against taxes, right? So this is Josephus again. Now this is in Jewish War, chapter 2. If you don't have all the writings of Josephus on your iPad or on something, uh, you need to just read this guy. I mean, he's great. He's the king of run-on sentences. It's unbelievable, yeah. A certain Galilean named Judas convinced his countrymen to revolt. Now, tell me if this doesn't sound like America and the Libertarian Party. Hang on now. He said they were cowards if they would tolerate paying taxes to the Romans and submitting to the lordship of mortal men before God. This man was a teacher of a peculiar sect of his own. Do you know what that sect was called? Occupy Rome. Occupy Rome. <laughs> That's actually good. You catch that. Okay. Yeah. Now this is, this is the guy that made up the zealot party. This is the guy that started the zealots. About six of the common era, right? He's the zealots, right? We've got a couple of apostles that were part of the zealot party. Certainly, Judas. Yeah. What's also uh, Simon the Zealot? Simon the Zealot. Exactly right. Here's some more. This is from Antiquities. Now, this was from Jewish War II. The first one. This is from Antiquities. Listen to this. Judas the Galilean authored the fourth sect of Jewish philosophy. What's the first one? The Sadducees would be the first one. Excellent. I thought you were going to say Pharisees. The Sadducees, because they started back right after Ezra, okay? So you got the Pharisees. In Hebrew, that's Sadokim. Sorry about that. The Sadducees. Sorry. Or the Sadokim. Thank you. The second party? The Prushim or the Pharisees. The third party? The Essenes. Or some would consider that to be the Qumran community. We don't really know, but the Essenes, they're the guys living in the desert, right? Probably really closely associated with Yochanan Hamakvil, right? 
out there, being away from the corrupt temple and all of that. And then the fourth one here, the zealot movement. These men agreed with the Pharisaic notions on all points. That's important to note. But they also have unbreakable devotion to liberty. They say that God alone is ruler and Lord. They have no fear of dying any type of death, nor do they show concern for the deaths of their relatives and friends, nor can the fear of death force them to call any man Lord. Don't you feel like you're watching some kind of Mel, uh, Mel Gibson movie here, right? Freedom! You know, it's unbelievable. These guys are libertarians. I will not call any man Lord! It's unbelievable. So that's Judas. Now, we got a little problem here. Gamliel is defending Hashlikim, the sent ones, the apostles, around 30 of the common era, right? Now, Thutis, according to Josephus, was revolting when Fadis was the procurator. I don't know if that's true, but everybody agrees Fadis was procurator between 44 and 46 of the Common Era. So Thutis was in 45. Judas, we know, was in 6. Well, wait a minute. I mean, can somebody read it back to me? I thought... Gamliel said, hey guys, you remember there were two examples I can give you. One was Thutis. And he did like 400 guys and that didn't work out for him. Don't lose your head. And then there was Judas and that came to nothing either. So what's the deal? Acts chapter 5 verses 36 and 37 says, for before these days Thutis rose up. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up. We know for a fact Judas rose up in six. Huh. Now, I think we got a problem with the Bible. Well, the master, the master died in 30. Ish. Sure. We're going to call it 30. So it's right after, right after he died, that's that Pentecost. It's that Shavuot. So Gamliel is 45, 60 days after the Master's resurrection. The apostles are in the temple saying, He rose! It's unbelievable! He's, he's the Messiah! They're pulling him in and going, no, you can't, you know, Stop saying that. Stop, stop saying that. We'll put you in jail if you say that. They put him in jail. They kept saying it. They want to kill him. Gamliel stands up. Noah, what are we going to do, man? It looks like the Bible's wrong. In the days of the census is... That's Judas. And nobody argues with Judas being right after... I mean, it's, it's the second census. The first census was when the Master was born. That's what got David to go down to Bethlehem. The second census is when these guys revolted and said, that's it! I've had it! But they all died too. I want you to be able to step up. Because 
we're doing this gently. If you're talking to someone who is antinomian against the if you're talking to someone who is anti-biblical, if you're talking to someone who's anti-Christian, if you're talking to someone who's anti-Judaic, if you're talking to somebody who's not into this at all, if you're talking to a Muslim, they're going to catch this. It was the first census, before a little before zero. Right, the descendants of David, sorry. Yeah. Uh, okay. I was just like, uh, okay. Thutis, he began the Zealot movement, he said? Yeah, uh, that's the Judas. That's Judas. Judas. Okay, never mind. Thutis was Anubis. Yeah. Well, so, well, I don't know. So it sounds like I did this. Not me, I was prophesying. Ah! <laughs> he knew it was going to happen. There's different Thutis or just Wow. Okay, so did you hear what he just said? He's like, okay, there's either, there's either another Thutis or Josephus is wrong. There's one other option. There's another Judah. Oh, God, no. There's no problem with Judas. Okay. What's the third option? Luke's wrong. Exactly right. And I don't think you should be afraid to go there. Possible explanations? Josephus could have reference to Fadus's reign incorrect. I will tell you there are many Bible scholars out there that will point out all of the errors that Josephus has made in his recordings. He mixes up events and he puts things in the wrong order and stuff like that. He's famous for being a great historian but not a great recorder. He wrote everything down, but the slips of paper sometimes got out of order. That's legitimate. So it could have been Josephus's problem. Good point, son. Second, since Luke didn't hear Gamaliel say it, he wasn't there, he may have just chosen two troublemakers and didn't realize that he had introduced now a problem in the Scriptures because he's named one after and one before. It's possible. It's possible. Isn't that assuming that Luke write this down? I assu- I'm assuming Luke wrote it down, but we know Luke was not there. No, I mean, it does not assume Luke actually wrote this, his account of this down like 20 years after it happened. If he's introducing someone who didn't come for another 15. Yes. Yeah, that sounds pretty impossible. When was the book of Luke written? I, I thought 45 to 46. Don't know. Perhaps there was more than one revolutionary named Thutis. We just get the wrong Thutis. All three of those are possibilities. You just need to accept that. It's not a big deal. Take the whole thing about Gamaliel out of the Bible. You still got salvation by grace, and Yeshua is the Messiah. This could be remote, but as far as and I'm not offering it as, a, as another explanation, but the thing on Josephus could also be that. He had to. You remember how when he saved saved his life by saying, "Oh, I can write," yeah. and things like that. Yeah. He sort of had to make things look in a particular order, sure, as it were. So yeah. some of the he so he's he got a bent. Have, so he may not have, you know, 
totally lied but may have stretched the truth or skewed things a little bit. True. The trouble is I can't find any reason why he would put Thutis in 45 if Thutis was actually before 30. Or somewhere between 6 and 30. Thutis was first, that's right. Yeah, yeah so it had to be before that's that. That's actually what I was just going to say, because it seemed my translation is saying, some time ago, Thutis, blah, 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 blah. And then, and then after, after him, that, we got Judas. Judas so yeah. it's it's a while. Right. And so it, and it does seem like that is more plausible, that there was maybe more, even more of a no-named guy, one not worthy of yeah. Josephus' yeah. writings, but nonetheless was a good example to use. Yeah, I think it's more probable in my mind that somebody went out to the Jordan before John did. You know? Yeah. Almost like John is simply saying, well, this is, if, if we're revolting, if we're rebelling, if we're looking at a change, we've already seen this movie, we go out here to the Jordan, and people come out to the Jordan. It could be that way. Also, if you're talking about a Thutis being before the 6th century CE, and they're in 30, that's 30 years prior. So, you know, we're all using... How many people in here have the same name? Right? You've got a bunch of guys that have the same names. I mean, this is just in one room, right? So, it's certainly conceivable in over 30 or 40 years, you'd have... To Thudai. Now, Thutis never claimed to be the Messiah. It was just... He, Thutis? Right. Claimed to be a prophet. Right, so... It's There's only one problem. When a prophet speaks, he speaks for right. God, yeah. So it's possible he looked at that prophecy of Malachi and almost maybe... It's Took it on himself. Yochanan's uh, identity. Could be. Yeah. 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 Certainly possible. I got two that grin, so you know about zealot sounds, right? Oh, three, okay. Gamliel's son, Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel, joined the zealots. He actually joined the zealots in the revolt against Rome. That's how he died. He died fighting Rome. It's a little trivia thing. Gamliel's son, his greatest student, became a zealot and fought against the government. That was in the first Roman road, revolt around 61, 63. Yeah, somewhere in there. Yeah. And then he died. So who took over? Gamaliel's hmm. uh, grandson. Gamaliel's grandson. I can't remember his name right now, but it was Gamaliel's grandson. It wasn't Shimon. I just ordered a two-volume series on the sages. And this is... This is it's getting your wet in your whistle now, huh? Yeah, there you go, yeah. Where'd you, where'd you get that? From porn. Really? Yeah, I sent a link to that if you would. Yeah, yeah so... So let's take a moment now and talk about Gamaliel. So let's make sure we understand... In the Talmud, we can find the transmission of the oral Torah from Moshe Rabbeinu to Yehoshua ben Nun, 
or just your sun of noon, or 1.30. All the way down, naming every single guy who it was passed to. Finally, it was passed to Hillel, the Hillel of Hillel and Shammai. Who did Hillel pass it to? Who was the next guy? Gamliel was the next guy. He didn't pass it to Gamliel. Who did he pass it to? Who's the guy that got taken out of Jerusalem in a coffin? Uh-uh. Yochanan ben Zakkai. Yochanan ben Zakkai is who Hallel passed it to. He skipped over Gamliel. Yochanan ben Zakkai. Yochanan ben Zakkai. These are the guys that you read about in the Pirkei Avot. Yes, sir. When we say pass it to, it's not like it was only him that, that heard the missions were out. But we know that's not correct. That he was not the only one who heard the Oro Torah. He was simply the one who was tasked with the responsibility of ensuring it passed down to the next generation. Everybody was teaching it. Teacher to disciple, father to son, master to slave. The halakha is taught, all of that. But there is one man responsible in each generation to make sure that it was transferred to the next generation. Absolutely. And passing on the baton, and I know that you're worthy to transmit it and so forth. Okay. We've got a prophecy here from the, uh, from the Master. Do you believe that Yeshua was prophet, priest, and king, or just priest? Is he your high priest? He's your high priest? Is he of the order of Levi, of Aharon? No, he's the order of Melchizedek, the king of righteousness and peace. So he is your priest, he's your king soon and in our days. Amen? Was he a prophet? He is a prophet. In Mark chapter 13, verse 9, be, be on your guard for they, this is Yeshua speaking, will deliver you, that's his shlichim, to the courts. In the Hebrew, that word courts is Sanhedrin. And you will be flogged in the synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. Who is it that you can name that stood before governors and kings? Absolutely without question. Shaul Acts chapter 5 and verse 40, they took Gamaliel's advice. Wise. And after calling Hashlichim in, after calling in the sent ones or the apostles, they flogged them. Oh, that's what he told them what was going to happen. And ordered them not to speak in the name of Yeshua, and then they released them. Yeshua told them that was going to happen. Paul was also flogged. I'd like to talk about flogging, if we can uh, do that. You've all had dinner, so we're okay? Okay. Well, let's talk about flogging versus scourging. I want you to understand that Roman scourge, Jews flog. What does it mean to scourge someone? What's that all about? Talk to me. Teach me scourge. Whip. Whip. Flog. Sticky leather. Sticky leather strips. Glass and porcupines. The cat of nine tails. Cat of nine tails. Okay. That's very... 
Well, it's very current. Now let's talk about the what Pete's talking about here. We've got strips of leather dipped in some kind of sheep's blood or something to make it sticky. And what do we glue onto it? Pieces of rock, bone, glass, right? All that stuff. Right? Sharp stuff. Lead. Lead balls are tied to the end. Okay? So what do we do with all of these leather strips that are heavy, right? Right. So we're going to strike the man... And what's going to happen to these long leather things? They're going to wrap all around his torso and grab onto the meat. And the guy's then going to take the handle, twist it, and do what? Pull. Pull. And what's his goal? Causing as much pain as possible. His goal is to remove as much meat as he can, which causes that excruciating pain. When the Lord Yeshua poured out His blood for you, it wasn't with three nails. That wasn't it. You ever step on a nail? How many of you have stepped on a nail? Done anything with a nail? How much did that bleed? Hardly at all? A trickle. Yeah. That's not the deal. It's the scourging. Well, and two, you know, it really brings to bear what Isaiah Yeshiahu says that, you know, his visage was so marred that they couldn't tell who he was because of the fact that he was beaten repeatedly. You bet. You bet. Okay. So how is it uh, that a carpenter who lives in a climate that's amazingly hot can't carry a piece of wood? That's what he does for a living. Why is he so tired, so worn out, that he can't carry a piece of wood? He's lost some blood. He's lost some blood. Isn't it true that most people it is correct. Historically, that's what we know. But it's from Josephus, so we don't know if that's out of order or not. But hey, there you go. All right. So that's, uh, that's good. We know it's true. We still know when it's true. That's right. It's exactly right. We don't know when it's true. Scourging comes from the word mastigao. Mastigao. You should be reminding you of the word masticate. We get the word chew. Because you're chewing off the flesh. With the scourge. It's ugly. It's amazing. Okay? On the other hand, flogging comes from the word fragalao. Fragalao. Fragalao, which is to whip or to beat. So when you got scourged, they whipped you. Now, it wasn't pleasant. Don't get me wrong. Historically, the Talmud says that many men actually died from being flogged. Passed out. This is the uh, 40 minus 1. This is the 40 minus 1. However, this is a Torah command. So we're going to look at that. Before we do that, plague is also used for flog a few times. If you've got the New American Standard or the English Standard Version, you're going to see flog translated from plague. But plague is more normally found, the most times, in the book of Revelation. And it's plague. Except when he's talking about wound. And the Antichrist received a wound as if fatal in his head. And he was wounded, and yet he lived. Remember that, that kind of, those, you remember those? That's all the same word. It's the same word as flog or plague. But plagues, you know, it's like 20 times. And he pours out the bowl, and we've got a plague of this and a plague of that. It's all the same word. 
So if you're reading it in Greek, you see this stuff that's being caused by God on the planet, and then you got this same word being caused to this man. It's pretty interesting if you follow it along there. It could change your theology a little bit, I guess. Certainly your eschatology. All right. The Torah and the fence. Forty times, but no more. Who can read to me? Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 2 and 3. Might as well give me one through three just to make sure we've got it in context. Yes, sir, what do you got? If there's a dispute between men and they come into court and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, then if the guilty man is to be beaten... The judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. Forty stripes may be given him, but not more, lest if one should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother be degraded in your sight. What is the goal? Just punishment. Just punishment, and then? Well, preserving the dignity of the person. And repentance. Well, they got to repent, right? So, just... Uh, Punishment, but you brought up a good point. We don't want to see the guy humiliated. Well, I would argue he's going to be humiliated if this is done in public. But, but not, not to the point where he's been degraded. Exactly. exactly. So, what's the Torah say? 40 times and no more. 40 times and no more. 40 times and no more. How do they flog him? This is in the Mishnah. One ties his two hands on either side of a pillar, and the minister of the community, we just talked about community a couple weeks ago, grabs his clothing. If it's torn, it's torn. If it's ripped, it's ripped, until he bears his chest. A stone is set down behind him on which the minister of the community stands. So picture him up higher now than the guy. A strap of cowhide is in his hand, doubled and redoubled, with two straps that rise and fall fastened to it. So you got these little flappers. He hits him with a third of the stripes in front and two-thirds behind. And he does not uh, he does not hit him while he is either standing or sitting but bending low. And he hits him with one hand with all his might. That's what flogging is. Yeah, I think it's Mishnah. I, th- I don't think it's Sanhedrin. I think it's Makot again. Um, but I, I'm surprised I don't have the thing, but I will get you the, the reference for that. So, it, it seems unpleasant. Now, the, the Talmud says that the officer of the court that's to administer the punishment would ascertain the, the health, the body of the man to determine what he could take. So you don't want to take a frail guy and give him too much or a robust guy and not give him enough. Sages built a fence, 40 less one. Yeah, this is from uh, Mishnah Machot 3, 10 through 12. Uh, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. Paul talks about this. Several times I received 40 stripes save one. Well, the next time you're talking to somebody in the visible church who's a little annoyed that you like fences and that you think it's okay to put a fence around the Torah 
and that you think it's neat that the sages did that on a regular basis to make sure that they wouldn't violate the command. They may have the impression that it's making life tough. Oh, your Sabbath is 25 hours now instead of 24. What a burden! You bring him to this. You bring him to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and you make it clear to them. The fence, in this case, was to only hit the guy 39 times, not 40. In case there was a miscount, we don't want to break the Torah. I think that's incredible. You ask him if they're willing to take the, the one that Paul missed for each time he went under. Yeah. So, all in all, we've walked through the book of Acts and we have gotten pretty much five, six chapters deep. And uh, we've seen a couple of places where it seems like the Pharisees, something happened. If you look at the Talmud, you look at Josephus, it looks like something happened with the, with the Sanhedrin. And the Pharisees were kind of left out of the club for a little while. But it appears that once you get into the back end of chapter 5, the Pharisees are back in play. Gamaliel stands up. He actually tells the court to put these guys out. That's cool. And then he gives his counsel. We've also seen now that we might have a little bit of scriptural discrepancy historically. Um, but I think we've got three different ways that you can look at that. We've also seen then that, uh, that the apostles were flogged by the assembly in order to teach them a lesson and to get them to not teach about the resurrection and life in Yeshua as the Messiah after that. So, all in all, I think we've got a pretty good historical benchmark now for the first five, maybe six chapters uh, because it's, it's really um, changing. The book changes to chapter 7, right? It's right after this. They have pretty much a time of peace where they're considered a temple sect. They're in the temple all the time. There's five sects of Judaism now. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes, the Zealots, because the Zealots were still around, because it's not for another 20 years or so, that, or 15, 20 years, that you're going to find the next guy Shimon stepping in there. And now you've got this Yeshua or Nazarene sect, temple sect of Judaism. So I would say that time-wise, we're between 30 and 60 of the common era. Chapters 6 and 7, we, we, we bump into the community in Jerusalem needing to select deacons. And one of the deacons they select is Stephen. And it's pretty clear from the scripture that deacons are not second class. They're amazingly godly men. Stephen is, uh, is brought up by the same Sanhedrin, and this time the Sadducees win. I would argue that 
maybe you're getting to a point where Gamaliel is getting pretty old. His son hasn't stepped up yet and taken over. And he just doesn't have the ability to slow them down. And Stephen is stoned. And then we get introduced to a new character, one of Gamaliel's students, Saul. Saul is actually holding the cloaks or guarding the cloaks of the guys who have taken off the cloaks so they can throw the stones. And Stephen is put to death. This is the same Sanhedrin that did not have the authority to put a man to death just 20 years prior to that, or less. Okay? So we're up to chapter 7 in the book of Acts. Uh, You can pick up on our break. Questions on what we talked about tonight, on Gamaliel, on first five chapters of Acts, the change in the Sanhedrin. What's the date that Paul comes in the picture? Acts chapter 7. Uh, you know, all I can say is, you know, we're in the same year when the, when the apostles are taken up here in Acts 5 is the same year. But there's a period of tranquility where they're, they're not being hassled for quite a while. And I don't know the year. I can only... To that point? Or beyond that point? Beyond that point. After they got flogged and sent out, there, there, there's a period of time where there's, there's no hassles. They're pretty much left alone. And it appears you've got... Uh, perhaps 10 years, 10, 15 years before Saul steps up. It may have been less than that. Um, the book of 1 Corinthians is considered one of the earliest writings, and some will date it as early as 35 in the Common Era. If Paul wrote in 35 to the Corinthian church, then that means that everything we read from 7 on to the beginning of his first ministry was in those first few years. That could be too. I would lean towards that way, actually. But it could be much later. And everybody that was evangelizing were Jews. I mean, the Jews were evangelizing the Gentiles. I mean, that's really what was happening. I mean, I think Jews. I, I think Jews are evangelizing Jews right. in Jerusalem for sure. Right. And then, um, and then you got the Cornelius deal, right? How far along did that take place? Chapter ten. I know the chapter. I mean. <laughs> I, I would be guessing. Is it before or after Paul? Paul is first. Because right after Stephen, you've got Paul. And we deal with his whole deal and the road to Emmaus and all that kind of stuff. Then we take a little hiatus from the road to Damascus and what he's going on with, and we're back to Peter again. Peter's now by the coast, sunning himself on the, on the roof. He's praying. Guy's hungry. Paul takes three years in Arabia. Right, he goes to Arabia for three years to go through the Torah cycle. Now with this, this new eyes of Messiah. So while he's back there, the, back at the ranch. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's not back at the temple. See, Simon's now Peter. Simon Peter's out at, at Joppa, right? He's out on the coast. So it, it, we've had some time. 
So that Torah community in Jerusalem has either spread out or Peter is you know, going throughout the land of Israel and proclaiming Messiah. But he's certainly at Simon the Tanner's house when he has the vision. He's hungry. He's on the roof. And it was actually three days before that that Cornelius hears and sees the vision. But it's pretty safe to assume that up to that point, most of the believers were Jews. I would go, I would go so far as to say um, if there were Gentiles, they're so insignificant they're not being named. Right. But... It is, but it is important to remember that you do have some Jews that are not Jewish speaking. They're, they don't speak Hebrew. And they did not grow up in the land. They're Hellenized. They came in for the feast. We've got enough of those that we've got that disputation, right? Going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We've got widows here that they're not getting any food. But they're Hellenistic Jews. So the whole first part of that book of Acts there, you're dealing with this difference in Judaism. It's not just the Jew-Gentile question. Before that, it's Jew-Hebrew, Jew-Greek. This guy, born, raised in Israel, speaks the language. This guy, Jew, born outside the land, doesn't speak Hebrew. He's grown up with a Septuagint. So we're dealing with that whole mix, and they're learning to get along. And then we get the Gentile deal. It just—it seems so ironic to me that at first, all Jews, all Jews, reaching out to Gentiles for the Gentiles to join their faith, and now it's the other way around. Christians are trying to win Jews to this. Yeah. Well, to your point, Joe. To your point, I would actually, I would actually back it up and say, in the beginning, it was Jews reaching out to Jews, and that's what the church models itself on. That early church, that's what they're trying to say is theirs. New deal, new spirit. But you're right. The the quote-unquote Great Commission was the Jewish Messiah telling his Jewish king, right? To go into all the world and preach, all, you know, and preach to all people all things that I told you, right? Starting in Jerusalem and into the you know, basically join the Jewish. Faith. That's right. Not not create this. That's right. Christianity. That's exactly that, right. That, that, that he, commits, he commissioned yeah. Jews to go evangelize. To evangelize. Right. That's exactly right. Jews and Jews. That's exactly right. That just seems crazy to me that it's ironic. Christians have the audacity to think that they're the witness to Jews that bring them to this whatever they want to believe. Because really, Christianity is so vast. It's it's really doing anything which is right in your own eyes. I mean, it really is. With all the denominations, I mean, how many are there? A thousand? I, I, I think if we, if we try to simmer it down, we end up with a Gentile community that has forsaken its roots and the Torah. At the same time, we've got a Jewish community that has forsaken the Messiah and its roots, the Torah. Because if you look at the vast majority of Jews, they're not Orthodox. 
they're reformed and they're conservative or they're not practicing at all. So I think there's problems on both sides of the aisle. And I'll grant you that the Gentiles, with all their zeal and no knowledge, have a little problem. But at the same time, I could also say that on the Jewish side, there's a, there's a problem. Both seem to be in a bad way. I think that we tend to see the problem on the Gentile side more clearly because we're on that side. But, you know, we look at somebody like uh, uh, the rabbi that came to visit. He's pretty upset with the Orthodox community. Why? What are you doing here? Did you know in 1948 we got the land back? What are you doing here? They're going to join the Knesset. Did you see that? That's pretty incredible. That's pretty incredible. Questions? Comments? On which topic? On uh, lashes. On lashes. More or less on punishments. Uh-huh. Uh, Has this been uh, promoted by something that's going on in your family? <laughs> I'm just sorry. Flyings will continue until morale improves, right? Yeah, the lashes thing is, I think, a great example of uh, being able to put those that are against fences in their place. To, I mean, can you think about it for a second. Can you think of any other fence that the sages have placed that actually reduces the Torah, makes it easier on people? Uh, I can't think of a specific example, but I was going to make a comment. Yes. How can they be against fences And the way they and I'm with you. And how how apropos that a carpenter is building fences for the people. I mean, it just works for me. But the way they see that is this is Yeshua giving his Torah, his law, and you need to obey that because it's a new law. His yeah, it was oral because it wasn't. Written. So you can't create fences. You just create new law. That's right. Just to start start from scratch. Right. Let's forget forget that whole fence thing. That's right. All right. Well, I want to uh, I want to close with uh, a little quick challenge for you. Uh, we're going to take the month of uh, July off, and I'm uh, planning to leave town as quickly as I can. So don't look for me. Um, I'm wondering if when we come back. Uh, we'll finish out, uh, we only have uh, August uh, and a little bit of September before we get into the Holy Days and we, we cancel class all the time until uh, uh, that starts with the High Holy Days and all. So I'm wondering if we should, now that we've done this for two or three years, if we should go ahead and revamp what we're doing and how and uh, perhaps uh, split up into more of a, I'm a noob, I really didn't hear the beginning of this stuff. I have no idea what I'm doing. Versus uh, more of a high-level, let's tear apart some of what the Talmud says and some of what the Mishnah says um, with regard to weird fences and stuff like that. I was thinking, and this, uh, this again is just an idea, um, that the noobs would meet once a month rather than once a week 
because we got a lot online, and I'd like to spend some time and put that into a great, um, instead of saying it's class 39, which tells everybody, zip, right? But rather to say, here's, here's the, the writing and the presentation that we did on this particular topic, and here's the audio for it, and, and kind of rebuild all of that. So maybe the, um, the noobs can meet, and I, and I say that in the most loving and gentle way, I hope you understand. Maybe the noobs can meet once a month, and then the, uh, we can all meet uh, on a more high-level, technical, wow, isn't this cool, let's dig in kind of class, um, maybe once a quarter is what I was thinking. So that's my thoughts. Think about it. Um, my desire would be that you know how to study, you know what to study, you know how to walk. Um, we should be holding ourselves accountable by meeting and uh, breaking bread together, practicing hospitality, studying together. Uh, I know that uh, many are, are uh, providing opportunities. I know some want to start a, uh, a Tal- you know, start the Talmud reading cycle. There's two reading cycles for the Torah. One is a one-year cycle. The other is a three-year cycle. There's a Talmud reading cycle, and that cycle is how long? Seven, Seven years long. So, I, I don't know if there's a mission of reading cycle, but that sounds like it would be easier to me. But, you know. Um, at any rate, that's, that's my thought. So you guys think about that. You have all of July to think about it. We'll meet the first Tuesday of August. And um, I hope to have a, uh, uh, an extraordinary class uh, for you. But I don't want to spoil it. Just kind of wet your whistle, and I'll shoot out some missives from here. Um, periodically, just to kind of wet your whistle on that. Final comments? Yes, sir. I need some clarification on... Uh, I mean, you guys have talked a lot about the law. What, what is the bottom line about beards? Are you supposed to wear... Are we supposed to grow a beard or did not? You, did you say beards? Yes. Are you supposed to shave? Well... I mean, the way, everything the, I read says no. We're, yeah. Not supposed to shave. Yeah. Um, you know, my, my take has always been if God put the hair there, why would I take it away? Yeah, really, that's, that's really the bottom line. Um, I think Gregory did uh, quite an in depth study on that um, some time ago. Um, so we can, we can look at that. Maybe he can pontificate in a second. Um, but I would, uh, I would offer up the tradition of God's people is that it is an identifier. If I take your son out into the middle of Charlotte and I say, we need help, get a cop, how's he going to know who the cop is? He's identifiable, isn't he? He's got a uniform. He's got a uniform on. He's identifiable. Find the rabbi. He's identifiable. So in God's community, traditionally, the women have been able to identify the single men versus the married men because the single men don't have beards. The married men do have beards. And it's, it's traditionally been a differentiator that way. So I would start off by saying, if shaving is a sin and not what was intended, then the sages got it pretty wrong, and that would be very surprising. If shaving was a sin, and it shouldn't do it, then the sages got it wrong, and they would be encouraging their young men to shave until they were married. And that would be wrong. And I would, I would find that hard to believe. 
Want to come? Sure. There's there, there's two verses that talk about that. One is in regard to priests, and the other one is just a more general one. And there's two different words used. The one for the priest is actually do not remove your beard. And so the, the thought behind that is a priest is always supposed to have a beard. So if you're a Levite and you're a priest, you shouldn't shave at all. But the other one is more of like that, that word for destroy. Damage the corners. Damage, yeah, or mar. I mean, there's a lot of English translations for that word. And that one isn't specifically referencing like the, the shaving or removing of it. And the sages have all kinds of, actually not even the sages, more of the modern day rabbis have all kinds of things about which razors you, you should use, which would constitute a marring or a shaving and all that. But those double and triple blades, blades are good, but the single blade is really a problem. Yeah, I, I don't even remember what some of the things they were saying were. But that one, that one's dealing with the corners right. of the beard, not the entire beard, just the corners. Well, but that's, I mean, yeah, which is debatable where those are. I'm not questioning it's debatable. I'm just saying it's obviously not the whole beard. You shouldn't mar, damage, cut, whatever it is, the corners of your beard. I mean, we, we know Orthodox rabbis shave. Um, but the corners, the corners thing is traditionally. There are there's a halakhic understanding as to what that what that is, right? So for example, uh, sideburns, the halakhic understanding as it's been explained to me, I'm I'm not a I'm not a guru. I'm I'm not a rabbi, but I play one on TV. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that the sideburns have to be, you know, uh, below the That brings to the point what, why I was going through, and I think it's noteworthy that Gamliel was skipped. This guy, this guy was a tana. He was top shelf. He's known as being one of the greatest Torah teachers of all time. He was the nasi of the Sanhedrin from twenty to forty. The Talmud and the Mishnah say nothing but good about Gamliel. But Hillel did not pass the responsibility of the oral Torah to him. He passed it over him to Yochanan ben Zakkai. Well, they were contemporaries. So he passed it to him, not to Gamliel. But that's exactly what he's talking about. It's the oral Torah that says, well, we, how far down and what do we do? I remember when that the rabbi he's speaking of that shaves was sitting right there. And I called him on that peyote thing. I said, you know, how come you're not peyote? You shave and you got no peyote. And he went... <whistles> he had him hidden behind his ear. He says his wife loves him. She thinks they're the greatest thing.
what I got out of that. I, I too have come to the same conclusion. Now the peyote thing, mm. I try to use scissors around that area. Yeah, I've noticed that in our culture of late, sideburns are completely disappearing, and they're going, whoosh, and it, you know, it's it's gone. So, yeah. But that's a great question, and we can actually dig in and, and do a study on it, if you want, and do the same kind of study that he did, and look at the Hebrew and see, and look at the halakha, look at the shulchan aruch, look at the mishnah, look at the look at the Talmud. We can do that. Well, I just read that book that you gave me and gave us. In. Oh, he was uh, really adamant about it. Yeah. It was like, you know, I need to really get it, understand this. But but see, that's that's a that's a great. I mean, bringing up an issue Amen. like that, and then let's say, okay, here's an issue or a question, present it to the group, and then we we'll come back. We all do a we all do a study and come back, and then we have a discussion. Amen. That's. I, I think we've been through the basics. I can take some of the younger guys and newer guys through the basics again uh, next year. But that's exactly what I'm looking for now. If we all understand why we're here, what we're doing, how to respond, the history, well then, yeah, we need to deal with, hey, I'm married. Should I be, should I be shaving every day or not? That's great. I'd love to talk about the kippah again. You know, should we be wearing a kippah all the time, or just when we pray, or just when we pray publicly? And I, I don't think we could even start that class unless you go listen to the class he already taught, and then start doing your own study. So that would be great. Yes, sir. Well, one more comment on the beard thing. The word for beard, mm-hmm. um, or the word for elder rather, is a zaken, a an elder zakan is the word for beard. So it's understood if you're an elder in the community, a beard is part of. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Change the vowel. It's basically like like you're not calling them the elder. You're calling them the bearded one. Yeah, the bearded one. You know, we we know that you're supposed to stand in the presence of a gray-haired person, and we know that some people do tend to lose the hair on the top of their head. So if they they've got a beard, then shield the white right here. Yeah, you know, you can get Grecian formula that actually does gray instead of black. Yeah, okay. Good good question, good comment. Yes, sir? I was just going to say there was a uh, translation of, uh, I'm not sh- I think it was in the book of uh, Jasher, where it refers to, when Lot was in Sodom, mm-hmm. it refers to the men that were in that company who wanted the, to know the two angels. Mm-hmm. I would have thought them to have been beardless wonders, but yeah, you know. yeah. Joe, um, would you, not to put you on the spot, but would you maybe share just a few of your thoughts, a few, a few that your takeaways from the book that you just that you just read? Uh, just tell them, tell them again what what you what you what you just read. Well, it was about a rabbi. Israel, that uh, his walk really is halakha, and uh, it, well, it, well, I don't think any of it was written by him. It was by people that were around him, 
in testimonies of uh, how Radana used him in so many different ways of just, there was no way that uh, it, his sensitivity to Rukh was just incredible. Uh, people from all over Israel and the world, rabbis from everywhere would come, wealthy people, uh, and just want his blessing. You know, his his walk was so one and, and well known, uh, his closeness with Hashem, that they came just to, for his blessing and just to be in his presence. And uh, it was just incredible the, the hundreds of testimonies that he would pray for people and they would be healed. You know, it was just incredible. It, I was going to say the, uh, the shocking thing is that there have been so many godly, unbelievable rabbis in the Jewish community that have been written about, that have similar stories, that when we read about godly men and women in Christendom, it's normally about the fact that they rebelled against authority, went on a missions trip anyway, lived someplace, and died. And that's normally the story in some shape or form. And I'm not trying to minimize the Christian impact on the world. Um, But when you start reading some of these other books about some of the godly men that have been influential in Judaism down through the past 2,500 years, it's extraordinary what God has done through them. Praise God. And it was, you know, and it, it 
it's just, uh, just another example how we cannot put God in a box. That's right. Uh, nor can we look at a man, formulaic. right? So. Nor, nor can we look at the, look at a man and say he has no relationship with God because of X, Y, or Z, right. or he does because of X, Y, or Z. Is the fruit That's exactly right. And that guy, you know, I mean, his life was, yeah, you know, he was a walking fruit farm. I mean, he was, you know, I mean, he just, yeah. yeah, I. He was so incredible. I mean, people would come in and he goes, I can't, I can't bless you. What do you mean? I've been waiting for three hours. I, I, I says, I came from another country just to see you, just to, but I can't. And they'd ask him why. He goes, well, you don't honor the Sabbath. And they'd be like, well, how do you know? <laughs> and then they would do that constantly. Then they repent, and, you know, and, you know, and after they repent, and then he pray, you know, then, yeah, you know, yeah. Just, just his impact, you know, and his piety, his, uh, his piety, I mean, he would, <clears throat> You know, he on Shabbat he would only wear white. You know, just out to, to to kind of represent the purity of the Sabbath. Yeah. You know, he would fast six days a week. He only Sabbath ate Sabbath to Sabbath. to Hadala. Right from from kid from Hadala yeah. to, to Kiddush. Kiddush to Hadala. Yeah. Right. So he would he would he would eat, but then he would fast the rest of the week. Wow. And he did that for years, and nobody knew. He was his wife. She would take. She, he'd be in a, in a study praying or whatever, and she'd bring food in, and she just assumed he was eating, and he was giving it away to people and stuff. And he, she, you know, he did that for years before his own wife even knew that he was not eating during the week. You know, yeah, I think that's truly living out the biblical mandate: not to let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. <laughs> you know, uh, just his devotion to the, his community, his and. When you see people like that, and, and stuff said there aren't there there aren't examples in Christianity. There's certainly godly examples of Christianity, but but you see somebody like like that who had all of this influence and really quite honestly had a lot of power over people, right? Because they recognized his the, the special relationship, the special anointing that he had, and so consequently he had a lot of power and influence over people. But he never used it for personal gain. The guy, you know, lived a relatively modest life. You know, he didn't become you know, the televangelist and have the big house. Right, right. You know, I mean, just a simple, modest life. I mean, the real deal, you know. Just, just, just incredible. You know? I, I, gentlemen, I want to encourage you. And these, are, these are the examples of which Paul writes. We, we are living before such a great cloud of witnesses. And all of the witnesses that he names, of just a few that he does, are all Jews. They're all also before the cross. Just something to note. There's two red books right there. One is the Rishonim, and the, one, the other one is the early Akaronim. That's just looking at the first three quarters of this wall over here. And if they made it into those summary books, you might want to find a book on their life that's just focused on only them. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of books out there like the Rescuing the Rebbe Belts. I mean, why would, they, why would they go through all this for this guy? And they just, uh, even a little bit of it will encourage you in your walk. Piety is, uh, 
something that we're distracted from quite often. All right, I've, uh, I've committed to get you out early, so I'm going to have a glass of wine and celebrate the fact that we've, uh, we've gone another 11 months um, missing nary a week. But uh, I, I pray for you guys, um, and I'm interested in watching God work in your lives, especially you younger guys. Forget these older guys. You know, you've, you've had it. You're, you've, you know, what do you, what do you got left? 20? Okay. Surprises in the next 20, right? But these guys, they get the rest of their lives to live for God. I was telling someone uh, earlier, you know, the world has yet to see a man who marries and from the day of his wedding lives obedient to the commands, holy until he dies. That man is, is a recipient of a promise. God has put a challenge out there and says, I dare you. I dare you. Be obedient to me. Keep my commandments. See if I won't open a window in heaven and pour out a blessing on you that you're not even able to gather up and hold. Don't you want to be that guy? How can you be that guy if you don't even know his commands? Study the Torah. Memorize it. Don't just study it. Memorize it. I mean, how many songs do you know? Can you sing a bunch of songs? God bless you. They're worth crap. Study the Torah and memorize it. And when somebody says, well, what's... I heard there's 613 commands. What's number 54? Do you know? What's the first time birds are mentioned in the, in the Torah? Which birds are they? What's the last bird mentioned? Do you know the reference? I mean, don't you read it every year? Six-year-old kids. In an Orthodox community, stand here. Make you feel puny. Because they know those answers. Right off the tops of their heads. If we're going to be men of the book, we've got to study the book. If we're going to be distracted by the world our lives, our jobs, and all of that, we're only going to get so far. Let's pray. We hereby join ourselves to the Master, Yeshua, the Messiah, the Righteous One, who is the bread of life and the true light, the source of eternal salvation for all those who hear Him. Like a branch that remains in a vine, so may we remain in him, just as he also remains in the Father, and the Father in him, in order that they may remain in us. May the grace of the Master, Yeshua, the Messiah, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit abound to each of us. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you, man.